Well, welcome to Plum Creek Chapel. Let's go ahead and get started. Uh, we are going to pick up with our look at uh, Proverbs here in just a moment. This is actually part 20 of our ongoing series on how to read and understand the Bible. Um, as always, I like to mention what's been going on during the week. So Monday, we did an interview with Make It Clear Ministries. Now, those of you at Plum Creek may know this ministry because Dr. Stan Pons, president of Florida Bible College and president of Make It Clear Ministries, has spoken here at our church. Great man of God, dear friend. And so he uh, interviewed me on his uh, radio show, and uh, that was a great interview. And that's available at notbyworks.org or all of our podcast channels. And then uh, Tuesday, our regular ongoing uh, discussion with uh, the Christian Underground News Network, we continue to look at the Hegelian dialectic. This I haven't updated the slide. That's my mistake. Yesterday was such a busy day. But yesterday we were on, so that would be April 5th, and we talked about how very things are very seldom as they appear. So that new podcast is there. Uh, and then, of course, the book is still available. We still have some out in the lobby uh, here at Plum Creek, for those of you that are interested, or you can order it online at spiritoftheantichrist.org. And then lastly, we are in the middle of transitioning from DVDs, which we've used for years and years and years, to streaming. And a lot of our most popular DVDs are now available for streaming. Uh, and it's actually a really good platform. Uh, you can stream them on any mobile device, any computer. Uh, all the controls are there. You can fast forward, stop, pause. And there's also a button to download. So if you wanted to download a particular video, it's a little different than like YouTube or some of the mainstream uh, streaming services. Uh, you know, you, you, it's really hard to download from there. you got to find some other service to do it. But we make those available for streaming or download, so you can check that out. Uh, at, uh, at the Not By Work store. So again, we are uh, in an ongoing discussion of how to read and understand the Bible, and it's really been uh, encouraging for me to kind of chase these rabbits and look at different uh, topics, and I always love uh, the discussions that emanate from Plum Creek because you guys are, as you hear me say often, the best church in the world, and I feel like you know I have some framework to say that from because I've been in a lot of churches over the years. And I, I just love our church, love our people, love uh, the questions that you ask and, and the knowledge that you have. It always uh, in, encourages and challenges me as well. Uh, but as we were talking over the last few weeks about biblical genre, and to review, genre just means the type of literature in the Bible. So the Bible is one book that's got one divine author, God, but it's made up of multiple books by human authors that God inspired. And each of those books uh, is a little different from others in, in the Bible. And so that's called genre, just like it would be in English literature, any other literature. And so as we were talking about that, we talked about uh, one type of biblical literature is Proverbs. And so we spent some time uh, talking about, or we're spending some time now talking about uh, how to interpret uh, Proverbs. And so I did bring, let me grab these disappear from the camera for a second if you guys will help me out here and uh, if you'll pass those out uh, and then put the rest of them up here if you don't mind so I've got uh, printouts of the slides uh, it may change and depending on how long we spend on this topic if I add some things to it but it'll be substantially the same uh, here uh, and so this way you don't have to take notes you can kind of just underline highlight as we uh, go along uh, but to review, and, and by the way, those of you that are watching online or watching the video later, if you would like the handout, just email me and I'll send you the PDF. I'm happy to do that. Um, it's about 10 pages with I don't know how many slides, uh, you know, 70 or so slides. But anyway, um, we, this is just review before we pick up where we left off last week. Uh, Proverbs, of course, has 900 or so sayings. It, there's, it's unique in that there are no references to Israel's history or their covenants or the sacrifices and laws. There are many authors. Uh, Solomon is sort of most well-known from Proverbs because most scholars believe he wrote from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 22, so roughly two-thirds of the book. Um, but uh, we know for sure he wrote from chapter 10 through about halfway through chapter 22. Um, and then a few others like Agur and Lemuel. Uh, Proverbs are unique because they're timeless. They're simple, profound, memorable. They 
they just get right to the point. You know, they're not something that you have to read through an argument that's multiple paragraphs long and kind of come to the central theme or trace the points and the antecedents of this and so forth. It really gets right to the point. Uh, nor are they, you know, like narrative literature, which we've looked at, where it's telling a story and you can't just pull one verse out of context and, and make it into a principle. You have to look at the big picture. Why is this story being told? Um, and, and then, of course, we said Proverbs are to be read slowly, savoring them in small chunks. And we talked about how, you know, one proverb can take a lifetime to apply. You know, you read it again and again and you, you, you sort of internalize it. But at the same time, you find the flesh, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And you find yourself making the same mistakes. But that's okay. As we hide the word of God in our heart, it will convict us of uh, how we need to, to grow in that particular area. So the goal of Proverbs then is to master daily life through the practice of wisdom. And one thing that I, I think is very important to understand that, you know, when, we're, when we are talking about Proverbs and, and the impact they can have on our daily life and gaining wisdom and navigating life successfully, what we're talking about theologically there is the process of progressive sanctification. That is, every believer from the moment you become a child of God by faith alone in Christ alone, you are conforming to the image of Christ over time. Now, as we said last week, sometimes that might be three steps forward and two steps back. We go through seasons. When we get out of the Word, we might find ourselves backsliding. That's a biblical term, by the way. Um, but generally speaking, as we yield to the Holy Spirit and walk in the Spirit and not after the flesh, walk by faith, you know, focusing on uh, what is, you know, not seen. In fact, uh, a passage that uh, came to my mind today, um, I can't even remember who I was talking to or what I was doing when this came up, but 2 Corinthians chapter 4, um, oh, it was, I think it was last night, that's right, it was at our board meeting, Fred brought this up, and verses 16 to 18 are so powerful, uh, therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And, you know, when you boil it all down, isn't that really a good, you know, motto for life? <laughs> because we get so consumed, so distracted, so angry, so um, bothered, you know, so stressed out, all about things that we see, right? And, and if we can just learn to look past that, I uh, forget what message it was here just recently, but I, uh, in, on Sunday mornings in our walk through Acts, I talked about, you know, how you should focus on what is not seen, not what is seen. And I talked about how that's a little bit of a tongue twister. Well, uh, you know, I didn't show this verse. I wish I had, but it's it's a biblical principle. So I find myself again and again reminding myself that it's not about that. Don't worry. You know, whatever it is, whether it's a, a conflict, whether it's a criticism, whether it's a flat tire, whether it's a illness, whether it's you name it, financial issues. You just need to take a breath and remember God's bigger than all this. And let's focus on what we can't see, you know, health issues, whatever it might be. Focus on what we can't see because God is God. And I think Proverbs helps us do that because it reminds us that you know, things are not always as they appear, that God is at work. We're going to talk tonight about fearing God. We left off with that last week, and we're going to dive a little deeper into that. But really what we're talking about here is wisdom for daily living. And uh, spiritual maturity means that you know everybody's at different places in their walk, and they're also at different places in their walk at different times right so i think i'm reviewing i'm repeating a little bit of what we said last week but it's so important to remember that it's not like you get to a certain plateau in your walk with the lord and then you can coast you know oh i've arrived you know uh, i know everything there is to know about the bible no we're it's a lifelong study um when we began this series, and, we, and I gave you the five steps in the Bible study process 20 weeks ago now, uh, I talked about how the goal of Bible study is a changed life, 
and that it's not five steps that when you get to step five, you can stop. It's, re- it's repeated. It's like it's on repeat. You know, when you're listening to, you know, your music on your smartphone and you can push repeat and it'll play that either that same playlist or if you push it again, it'll play just that same song over and over again. Um, kind of handy. I remember back in the day when you had cassette tapes, it was a big deal when they had that t- mechanism that came out that you could put push the button where when it came to a, a silence on the on the tape as it was going around, it would know to auto reverse and, and go or I mean to replay that same song. Of course, now with digital technology, it's it's easy. But the same thing is true of Bible study. It's study and then start over to study again and then study again. And it's a lifelong process. And the more we saturate ourselves with the Word of God and the wisdom in God's Word, the, the more equipped we are uh, to handle it. But another aspect of that is to recognize that we're not all at the same place on our journey, right? I mean, uh, people... Uh, learn in di- at different rates they learn different things from different life lessons and one of the hardest things to do as a parent is to watch your kids make some of the same mistakes you made and you just you just want to somehow say you know look don't do that or do it this way but sometimes you know you have to learn yourself and and so the same thing is true in our spiritual walk we want to be careful not to um, assume that everybody's where we are expect everybody to be where we are uh, judge people for not being where we are. We all want to walk this journey together and encourage one another and come along one another. The book, the Bible talks about, you know, weaker brothers and different people and not causing a stumbling block. In fact, I was looking at uh, Romans today. This is a, another sort of not, I don't have the verse on the screen, but in uh, Romans 14, this is in the early church, so Romans was written about 56, 57 A.D. The church is roughly 22 to 23, four years old. Um, and, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. So 2,000 years later, we find ourselves still facing some of the same issues and struggles in the local church. And um, uh, Paul says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but do not... But not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak only eats vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not, not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Uh, who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Then it goes on to make some more points about being gracious with one another and liberty in the, in, in, instead of legalism. And then he says, why do you judge your brother or who, who, why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, so then each of us shall give an account uh, of himself to God. So, you know, sometimes uh, we, as we grow in our spiritual walk, we see things that our danger signs, pitfalls, landmines ahead, and because of wisdom and proverbs, we learn not to step on those landmines. Other people might not. It doesn't mean they're terrible people. It just means they're still growing in their in their process. And we want to remember that um, this is what wisdom is. It's skill at living life. It's not intellectual knowledge. It's basically the fear of God and the corresponding action. So we're going to talk tonight a little bit more about fearing God, but I mentioned last week that God wants us to draw from basically two wells of wisdom. On the one hand, God's Word, Revelation, and at the time Solomon was writing and these writers of Proverbs were writing, that revelation was in the form of written prophets, uh, such as the Pentateuch was already around, the first five books of the Bible was already around by this time but also actual prophets who were speaking the Word of God and other avenues of God's special revelation, like angel of the Lord or other things. Um, But today, we have the full and complete revelation of God. Peter tells us it's everything we need for life and godliness. And so when we use the word revelation, we don't mean subjective new truth that God somehow bellows forth from heaven. We mean the Word of God. Uh, Now, we've talked a lot in the past about how God still, through the Holy Spirit, leads and guides and moves and encourages, and so a lot of it comes down to semantics today. We do believe that, you know, the Lord can give you a a word of encouragement. He can speak, you know, tenderly to your heart, but not on the same level as revelation. It's not like this is new, authoritative, 
open up the Bible and add a 67th book to the Bible. It's, it's the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. But that's one avenue. And then the other, though, is life experience. Remember, Proverbs 15, 31 says, The ear that hears the rebukes of life will abide among the wise. And I have to tell you, I'm terrible at heeding the rebukes of life. You know, I, I am much, it's much easier for me to heed the rebukes of Scripture. And, you know, having studied it and devoted my life to studying it, I, you know, I can't really argue with it. You know, I'm not perfect at it by any means, and I don't always follow God's will by any stretch. But what I'm saying is I'm a slow learner when it comes to the rebukes of life. And, uh, you know, sometimes God really has to get my attention. But if we could learn to, to uh, recognize, accept, and, and apply the wisdom of experience, life would uh, be much simpler. So uh, the Holy Spirit gives us insight from both realms. So in essence, Proverbs is a book of practical guidance for life. Um, and it helps us navigate life successfully. The theological message is that Proverbs is a book that focuses primarily on philosophy. But remember, philosophy is a word that's only used once in the New Testament, and it means love of wisdom, and it has come to mean worldly wisdom. So if you get a degree in philosophy, you know, like I have a PhD, a doctor of philosophy, you're studying all the great thinkers of the world, but I did it in a theological institute of higher learning, and so I did it in comparing that with the wisdom of God's Word. Um, for years, they used to call the terminal degree in, in uh, those schools a doctorate of theology, a THD, theology. But uh, nomenclature changed, and for the last you know 100 years or so, it's been philosophy. But when we use the word philosophy, we mean something different than worldly philosophy. <clears throat> Because all the world's greatest thinkers put together in a room for months could never match the infallible, reliable truth of God's wisdom. Um, so um, the, you know, the, the Hebrew philosophy begins with an affirmation. That affirmation is that there is a God and you are not Him. And He alone is true. He alone is right. He alone is holy. Revelation 15 tells us there's none like Him. Um, and so... You know, we want to uh, fear the Lord. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1, 7. And, you know, there's a fundamental presupposition in this verse that begins essentially the book of Proverbs, and it is that God is all wise, and we can only find wisdom in God, ultimately. Uh, there, again, there's life experience, but ultimate wisdom comes uh, from God. In, Jew, in, in the Hebrew culture, the Jews assumed that God expressed His wisdom in all His works and in all His ways. They believed that all natural phenomena revealed God's wisdom. Wherever they looked, they saw God's fingerprints on land, at sea, in the, cl in the clouds, uh, on the earth. And, you know, we see that viewpoint uh, again and again in Scripture, with, when P writers of Scripture under the inspiration of the Spirit point out the, the handiwork of God, the glory of God in creation. But this motto, this, this uh, presuppositional uh, statement here or affirmation also contains an inevitable deduction. If wisdom is perfect in God, and it is, then wisdom in man consists in the fear of God. A person is wise to the extent that he or she apprehends and fears God. That's what it says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So the question then becomes, what do we mean by fearing God? And we've talked about this before. Obviously, it comes up a lot. It came up in our study through Hebrews, and we talked about fearing God. Uh, Hebrews says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But the fear of God does not mean a dread that results in hiding from God. It is rather a recognition of God. It is not fear that he may hurt me, but fear that I may hurt him. That's fear of God. Let me say that again. Fear of God is not fear that God will hurt me, but it's a fear that I may hurt him. And this is the kind of fear that produces 
holy character, righteous conduct, righteous behavior. The person who learns the fear of God, that is, recognizes God, there is a God, you are not Him, in every sphere of life, is going to be successful. Now remember, success is not measured the same way the world measures success. True success isn't about your bank account, your job, your house, your family. True success is being at peace with who you are, who God is, walking in, in daily uh, recognition of Him. And, uh, you know, as Isaiah the prophet said to the nation of Israel in Isaiah 26, uh, when they were going through a horrible time, uh, just after the fall of uh, Samaria in the 8th century B.C., and he said, Yahweh will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. So often I think about that verse, and I often uh, recommend that verse or send that verse to people who are anxious, who are struggling with some stress or despondent in some way. If you can just keep your mind fixed on the Lord, you will be successful. doesn't mean there won't be difficulties. We live in a fallen world. You know, this world is inequitable. It's sold under sin. The whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. So we've got to stop thinking so simplistically about life, you know, and success meaning no problems from a worldly perspective. But success doesn't mean the absence of problems. It just means contentment, joy, peace, those things that we just say, Lord, you know, as Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him right? Um, so recognizing God means taking God into account, being aware of his presence, making decisions in view of his existence and what he has taught us in his, his uh, word. That's what fearing God means. Uh, recognizing or acknowledging or considering God in every aspect of life. Uh, and I, that is so hard to do, isn't it? You know, and that's why I think Proverbs is so helpful, is that if, uh, the more we read it again and again and again, I'll make it a daily routine, <coughs> the more we get, you know, really tangible, manageable, bite-sized nuggets that help us appreciate God. I mean, all Scripture is profitable. We should study and teach the whole counsel of God. We can certainly, the Spirit of God can use every book of the Bible to lead and guide us and teach us theological truths, teach us about salvation, teach us about the end times, those types of things. But just in terms of the big picture, you know, outlook on life, when you get out of bed in the morning and you kind of look ahead at your calendar and think, what's going on today? Proverbs, reading a proverb a day will help us just maintain a, a spiritual uh, perspective on so many levels. And, and we're going to get to, I don't know if we'll get there tonight, but we're going to get to some of the different topics and categories because you can group proverbs together into different themes and uh and i've listed a few at the end of our study but uh there are far more than just that so so any questions about the fear of the lord because we really need to own that and understand it before we can appreciate proverbs yeah wouldn't the fear of the lord go a little bit deeper than just the recognition of god the respect, the love, uh, the, the honoring, because the demons recognize God. Well, so the question is, wouldn't the fear of God go uh, deeper than simply recognizing God because the demons uh, recognize God? So you're talking about James chapter 2. Um, actually, what James chapter 2 says, and it's not James that's speaking in the context, it's a someone who's disagreeing with James and he's taking on their voice, the fool, and, he, and he's saying the demons believe that God is one. The demons believe in the unity of God and they tremble. That's a different kind of fear. That's a terror because they know that the one true triune God is going to cast them into the lake of fire someday. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it depends on how we define acknowledge the Lord. And what I'm suggesting is that in acknowledging God and really knowing who he is, you know, that is the deeper sense that you're alluding to, I think, is that it's not just um, acknowledging that he exists, 
it's it's acknowledging who he is that he alone is god that he is sovereign that he's the creator that he's not he's in charge and you aren't so that's kind of what i'm in, implying with all of that but yeah i mean it's 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 more than what i can really even articulate here you're right it's a just a sense of really recognizing who god is yeah a sense of awe what's that a sense of awe yeah the comment was a sense of awe so often we try to define the fear of god biblically uh, in terms of reverence or awe, and that's right. Um, but I just think that it goes, you know, even those words aren't enough to describe what Proverbs is talking about when it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Because, you know, I can be reverent, but not acknowledge, you know, sovereignty or control or, or, or holiness. Remember, holy means one of a kind. There's no one like him. So in Revelation uh, 15, let me find the exact verse. I uh, mentioned it a second ago, but I didn't have the verse at my fingertips. Revelation 15, verse uh, 3 and 4. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. So, you know, when we, uh, we've made many trips to Washington, D.C., I used to teach uh, a, at a school that had a campus there, and I would go uh, once a semester for a two-week time and teach a, a class. I taught church history, I taught uh, dispensational premillennialism, and I taught one other uh, class, but it was four straight semesters. So we spent a lot of time there. Plus, we used to live up in the Northeast, and so I've been in D.C. a ton. And we've taken our kids to uh, Arlington National Cemetery. And when we take them there, we explain before we walk in, you know, this is a place for reverence. <laughs> I mean, these are men and women who have given the ultimate sacrifice for the freedoms that we have in this country. And we're not going to run and skip and holler and poke your sister and elbow and laugh and we're going to walk through reverently but that is not the kind of reverence that i'm thinking of with god because you know we're not bowing down and worshiping these soldiers who have died so i just i mean there's nothing wrong that is a good definition when we talk about fear of the lord it's not terror like oh no i'm afraid of god it's it's reverence it's awe, but it's it's in a context and that context is the holiness and and oneness and unity and sovereignty of, of God. So I think from Proverbs, you know, it's not just about being serious or sober or reverent. Uh, that's all part of it. It's an, We are in awe of God, you know, and that we read that in Revelation there. But it's because of who he is. And I tell you, the sooner believers can really come to grips with the fact that that you know there is a God and we are not Him, it 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 changes us. You know, um, you know I, I still remember in my journey uh, when our kids were younger and I was you know teaching full time and obviously had a lot of room for growth. Still do obviously, but I'm just I mean I, I was very much younger and um, and and I really for the first time I don't even remember what class I was teaching, but as I was preparing and studying, I just the Spirit got a hold of me and I really became aware of in a fresh new way the sovereignty of God and what that meant and it was a real turning point because until that point sovereignty was one of those concepts that I was afraid of and I think most Christians are there if they're honest it's we, we, know, we know it's a theological principle so we're certainly going to check yes on a test God is sovereign yes but we're kind of afraid to think about it we're much more comfortable with free choice because that's in our control, right? We can control that. But uh, in working through that, it was, you know, Wendy, my wonderful wife, most of my theological, you know, premises come from her, by the way. Um, she, she really pointed out that, you know, because she was, we were kind of walking through this together, that, you know, and a lot of it, I'm digressing in several different ways here, but my mind is going 100 miles an hour, but a lot of it was at around the same time that we were 
kind of waking up to the Luciferian conspiracy and the reality of the world the way it really exists and that almost nothing was like we thought it was and there was always an agenda behind it and the, the fake media and the fake this and the fake that. And it was terrifying. And we often would comment, man, I wish we never woke up. You know, ignorance is bliss and we were, we were so much more fun. Before. But anyway, in that whole context, it was about that time that she commented, you know, sovereignty is really... Um, comforting it's a safe haven because what sovereignty teaches us is that whatever happens god somehow is using that to bring himself glory and to bring some good out of it romans 8 28 doesn't say all things are good but god is working all things together for good so i don't have to think of life through the lens of good bad or you know you know all of these different paradigms that we tend to make you know enjoyable fearful you know we just we tend to put everything into these categories like you know trip to the dentist bad trip to the circus fun you know uh, you know watching the broncos bad watching the cowboys good you know uh, we tend to put everything in those categories and what we what, what understanding sovereignty does is allow us to step back and say yeah in the human realm of time space and matter we have all of these things pain uh, pleasure, sorrow, joy, you know, mistakes, blessing, all of these things. But somehow, our Creator, who is eternal and is above all of that and beyond all of that and spoke all of that into existence, uh, gives me comfort. And sometimes God brings you through something where it's the only place you can run. And you just have to say, God, I have, I have no idea why this is happening or what you're doing or where this is going to end, or how we're going to get out of this, but I'm going to rest in your sovereignty. And so that's the kind of fear of the Lord that, that Proverbs is talking about here. It's that it not only gives us good guidance for life, but it reminds us you know, who God is and that it's all about Him. Uh, any other comments or questions about that? Yeah. When I first started reading Proverbs, and starting here, Historically, during this period, and all the other quote, quote, small <laughs> G gods were all fear. I mean, oh, yeah. They, they feared them. Terror, yeah. Terror. And I, I, this is my poor theology, but I, when I saw this in the, in the Bible, in the Word, I thought, well, it's not a fear of God. It's, it's to know Him better because He is different. He's different than the other gods of that time that would be, quote, quote, worship. Yeah. So that, that's kind of the way I took it at first as I was you know, new to the Bible, new to the Word, and going through it. Yeah, so I'm going to summarize what you said because you've got a lot of really great points there. So uh, he pointed out that in the ancient Near East, the time frame of when Proverbs was being written, all the pagan gods were feared. I mean, they literally were feared. Um, terror, you know, they were brought terror. Uh, God didn't operate that way, though for the unbeliever and the ungodly, certainly there's that aspect too, knowing the terror of the Lord, right? Uh, and certainly in the wrath of God being poured out at the end of the age, we're going to see, you know, that aspect of it. But for the believer, it's not, again, being afraid that God will hurt me. It's being afraid that I will hurt him. And so, you know, you, you talked about how fearing the Lord was knowing more about him, I think you said. Yeah, and I think that's all a part of it. In Proverbs 7, um, this is the, the opening to this chapter, which is all about uh, immorality. But it says in the beginning, My son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live and my law as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom you are my sister and call understanding your nearest kin. So, you know, it's this... It is about you know knowing who God is, getting to know Him better, but so much so that it's it's instinctive. You know, so much of life comes down to following instincts. Are you going to follow the instincts of the old man, like we talked about Sunday? Uh, those of you that were here Sunday, we talked about how old habits die hard and the flesh thrust against the spirit, and you know it it really comes down to what instincts are you going to follow? Those fleshly instincts, 
or the spiritual instincts. And the more we build into our lives through God's principles, the more naturally we will remember them when the time comes up and it'll be easier to, to, to follow them. But if you remember something we've talked about multiple times in different contexts is the model of no trust obey, that it's not about behavior. I mean, behavior is just a symptomatic of something else, right? And so if you want to obey God more, you've got to trust God more. The Bible says whatever is not of faith is sin. So every sin we commit comes down to not trusting God. You know, God says this, he says do this or don't do this. Our natural fleshly instincts, the old man says, yeah, I like this way better. You know, the illustration that I always use, of course, going back to the garden is, you know, the flesh says, man, that's a shiny red apple. The spirit says, don't bite it, don't eat it, you know. And so who am I going to trust? Am I going to trust God or am I going to trust myself? So you could really boil all sin down to a lack of faith. Now, if, if trusting God leads to obeying God, like the great hymn says, trust and obey, how do you develop a trust in God? How can we bolster and, and, and strengthen our faith in God? By getting to know Him, the same way you build trust in anybody, right? If, you know, you know you're, if you're needing a babysitter, you know, you're going to feel far more comfortable hiring, you know, Nana, you know, your mom or your, your kid's grandparents that you've known all your life to come watch them than some, you know, nanny off the internet, you know, at, you know, 1-800-GET-A-NANNY or whatever. You know, you're just, you, why? Because you, you know Nana, you don't know the 1-800-GET-A-NANNY person, right? So the more you know someone, the more you trust them. The more you trust them, the more you obey. And so that's the paradigm. So how do we get to know God? That's what Proverbs says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. How do we get to know God better? By taking heed thereto according to his word. And uh, so we've got to learn to stop looking at the outward part and start looking at the inward you know, principles behind it and, uh, and develop this, this view of God that takes him into account in every decision that we make. Right? Uh, any other comments or questions about uh, Proverbs. I mean, about fear of the Lord. Sorry. Okay, so let's take a look at uh, some of the characteristics um, uh, of Proverbs. First of all, they're individual. Again, as I said, they don't speak to the nation of Israel as a whole. They center on man as a person with needs, potentials, and dangers. And these individual nature of Proverbs set forth goals to be achieved, pitfalls to be avoided, and qualities to be acquired. So again, going back to Proverbs 1, uh, verse 20. Wisdom calls aloud outside and raises her voice in the open square. So think back to our study of figures of speech. This would be personification, ascribing human characteristics to an inanimate you know, object, in this case, wisdom. Um, she cries out in the chief concourses at the openings of the gates in the city, speaks her word. Uh, Proverbs 8.15, By me, wisdom, kings reign, and rulers decree justice. So there's an individual aspect uh, to these uh, Proverbs, and it's, it's sort of telling us what we need to do to shore up our own, our own lives. Uh, they're also universal. Uh, they apply to any man at any point in history, available to all, you know. Um, so it's not like, you know, we have to, like we talked a lot about several weeks ago when we were looking at the difference between meaning and significance. Do you remember that discussion? It was a really helpful discussion. We got a lot of good feedback from that online that the Bible has one meaning, the principle of singularity of meaning. Each verse has one meaning. But the applications, the significance of it, is innumerable. And the Spirit of God can use it in different ways. And so when you're reading the story of, you know, uh, 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 Jacob and Esau and, the, you know, the stolen birthright, well, that's a historical narrative. We kind of understand what it means in its context. But what do we get from that? How do we apply that? That's application. You know, Proverbs are just universally applicable they're they're made you know 
to be applicable right out of the box, right? You don't have to add water. You don't have to add eggs. It just, let's just, let's apply them, right? Right away, right? I don't know about that analogy. <laughs> Sometimes I don't know why I say what I say. But got, got some funny looks from over here at the Ross, the Ross Quadrant, and I'm thinking, uh-oh. Did I, is that sacrilegious to talk about the Bible like a cake mix? I don't know. But anyway, you get my point. They're just readily available, readily uh, uh, applicable. They're also practical. So, I mean, think of some of the areas that Proverbs deal with. Um, they, they, they give practical counsel to develop personal qualities for successful living and avoidance of failure, right? Don't, you know, uh, he who turns in his bed like a door on its hinges, you know, will come to poverty, but he who's up early and, you know, gets to work is going to have plenty. You know, that's obviously a paraphrase, but that's the idea. Uh, Proverbs teaches that virtue is rewarded by prosperity, well-being, and long life, and vice is rewarded by poverty, disaster, and death. And again, this goes back to what we talked about last week. These are not universal guarantees. They're general principles. I mean, sadly, the world is full of lazy, you know, evil unbelievers who do nothing but sit back on their yacht, you know, like oligarchs and just order people around. Give me some more caviar, right? So obviously they're not virtuous. They're not heeding God's word. But, you know, this is a fallen world. It won't always be that way. Someday in the kingdom it will be perfect justice and the, the evil will be recompensed and the, the righteous will be rewarded. But in general, it's going to go a lot better for you if you, you know, are uh, virtuous, following God's word, obeying God's word, and so forth. So, you know, I wouldn't want to take that chance. You know, there are exceptions in this fallen world. Yeah. If someone is an unbeliever, they don't necessarily fear God, but they follow the Proverbs, will they, have, will they be benefited? If someone is an unbeliever and they follow Proverbs, will they be benefited? On the practical level, sure. You know, if you work hard and, you know, plant in summer and, you know, you'll have enough in the winter. That kind of, you know, those things are, again, universal. But they're, on a spiritual level, of course, they're separated from God because they've not, by faith, received Christ and been born again. So they're not going to get any spiritual, practic, you know, practical benefit. But on the human level, sure, the principles are true, you know. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, if you jump off a 10-story building, you're probably going to die. It really doesn't matter whether you're a believer or not. You probably shouldn't jump off a building, right? And so a lot of Proverbs are in that level of just you know, pre practical wisdom. But as the beginning of Proverbs talks about, and as we've already talked about, the big picture is about developing a, a, a true love for God and a recognition of who He is and so forth. Uh, they're also secular, meaning they deal with observations and issues of life and common sense. They're not, this isn't a book like Ephesians or, you know, Galatians that is dealing with issues of sanctification or justification and redemption and atonement and biblical, spiritual, theological principles. It's, you know, very much a, a, a pathway of, of advice for daily living. Uh, in terms of the scope of Proverbs, it addresses three primary spheres of life. So the first sphere is that of the home. And, you know, we see so much in there about, uh, about that. Um, for example, I'm trying to give examples as we go through rather than have a whole separate several weeks on it, but it, a famous verse that people, uh, I think, woefully misunderstand from Proverbs is Proverbs 22 6 that says train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it how many of you have heard that verse okay so so many verses in Proverbs deal with the home with parenting with husbands and wives and relationships within the home uh, but this one uh, you know people for two reasons number one they don't understand the nature of Proverbs which is general principles that you would do well to heed, not guarantees. But secondly, they don't understand specifically what's going on uh, in this verse. So 
uh, let's just do a little case study here. What what do you got? What have you heard? Let me take you off the hook so no one is afraid to answer. But what have you heard this verse as meaning, or how have you heard it interpreted? Yeah. <coughs> uh, years ago, our government used it to take a village to raise a child. So let's all start changing the <coughs> educational flow how we train a child. So he said. Years ago, when the government was using that mantra, it takes a village, um, they would, did they, did they actually, did you hear them actually appealing to this yeah. proverb to try to, yeah. So they said, uh, let's, as a village, let's train them up, you know. Um, of course, you know, we've all seen the village, so I don't really think we want them going anywhere near our children. But um, who else? What else? Yeah. My mom, <coughs> my mom, a godly woman, quoted it to me when I was backsliding. Okay, so she said, her god, her godly Christian mom would quote this verse to her when she was backsliding. Right, it gave her hope that she had done the right thing, so I would eventually come around. Okay, it gave her hope so that she she knew if she'd done the right thing, you'd eventually come around. Okay. Yeah, my mom paraphrased it with uh, "spare the rod, spoil the child." Right, which is another proverb. Yeah, so. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could actually put that verse on the rod, you know, have it engraved on there, and but uh, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. Um, somebody else, anybody else? Yeah, Sally. Well, my understanding has always been that what you teach the child when they're young about the Lord may not affect them right away, especially when they're teenagers, but later on, it's in there and it will. Yeah, so she said that, you know, when you teach your children while they're young, it may not have an effect right away, but later on, when they're older, eventually they'll come back to it. Anybody else? Yeah. I always thought that you train up a child to be a good citizen and so forth, and then later it was explained to me, you train up a child according to his bent. Okay, yeah. So I'm glad you said that. I was wondering if anybody was going to mention that. That's kind of the um, uh, sort of the, uh, I think it was Tim LaHaye that popularized that view, which was that train up the, a child in the way he should go, in other words, in his natural temperament and bent, and then, you know, when he's old, he'll capitalize on that or he'll that'll help solidify that or something like that. And then it's also been taken negatively, that if you let a child go his own way, you'll regret it because he'll never, he'll never learn, right? So the reason there's so many interpretations, and I've talked in teaching this and studying it, I've talked about five different interpretations, is again because people have a fundamental misunderstanding about what Proverbs is. So fundamentally what most of you have said in one way or another is that, well, Proverbs promises that if you, if you teach your kids, you know, what's right, eventually they'll always come back around. So let's just, let's just go with that for a second. So now, what do you do with the countless number of Christian parents whose children departed from the faith and never came back? So think about if you're that parent and that's your understanding of this verse. You only have two options. Either God was wrong or I was a terrible parent. I didn't do what the verse said. That's why they're not coming back, right? The fact of the matter is, it means it does not mean that at all, and it doesn't mean the you know the temperament view and the let him go his own way view. It all hinges on what train up uh, means, and train up is a Hebrew word that means literally begin or uh, dedicate or start out right. In fact, it's used in several other Old Testament passages. I can't think of the verses off the top of my head, but it is it's used of like an army marching out and these. The ones on the front row are leading the charge, so they're starting it out. And the idea here is the earlier, if you begin a child early while he's young, that's the key phrase, then he's more likely to stay on the right track. It's like you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? So think about it. If you have a, uh, you know, a young person who is naturally born into your family and you're a Christian family and from the time they're come home from the hospital. They're in church every week. They're having devotions around the dinner table. You're reading the Bible. They're hearing the gospel. And, you know, they're going to have a better chance at navigating life successfully than someone who 
you know, is from the foster system who gets, you know, adopted at age 15 and has never been saved. They get saved as a teenager because of the influence of your home. Well, you've got a lot of baggage there to overcome, right? So that when you see the phrase train up, think begin or start out a child while he's young. And when he is old, he won't depart from it. Again, it's not a guarantee. It's not a promise. Some people who've had early, horrific starts to life and terrible circumstances, and the grace of God gets a hold of them, they come to faith in Christ, they're born again, and they become just godly saints that are warriors in the Christian faith. Uh, so that would be an exception. And others that are you know, raised from the time they're a baby all the way up in the Lord, you know, they, they still you know, get away from the Lord. But it's not about what... It's, more, it's less about how you train them and more about when you train them. That's the key. It's train them up when they're young. Uh, uh, and, and, and when he was old, he will not depart from it. And part of this, too, is understanding, which we're going to get to next week, the different types of parallelism and couplets that you see in Proverbs. And this is you know, a synonymous parallelism where the second line, indicated by the word and, amplifies the first line. And so when the second line is set, talks about being old, the first line is then you can imply it's talking about when he is young. But it's, it's the earlier year you start a child out in the way of wisdom, the less likely it will be for them to depart from that way. Make sense? Yeah. It's not a promise that if, you do, if you're a good parent, you know, your child will always, he may backslide, but he'll come back around. I mean, we might be able to get that from other passages. Clearly, the more influence you have on your child, hopefully, if they're a believer, the Spirit of God will break through. But, you know, we don't have the mind of God, and we also can't see inside everyone's heart. So we look at the outward appearance. We look at someone who's struggling, who's living in carnality, struggling as a believer, and we have a tendency to categorize them or judge them. We have no idea what God's doing in their life, and the Spirit of God can bring them back around. Some people backslide for a day. Some people backslide for a week. Some people backslide for years. And it's never good to backslide. But, you know, that's just a fact of the spiritual journey. So um, that's one that applies to the uh, home. And, you know, some churches, uh, because of that, and also some of the Jewish customs that we read about in the Old Testament, you know, practice child dedication. You know, they, when a child is born, they'll say, at a church service, they'll have a, uh, we always called it parent-child dedication, because you're not really dedicating the child, you're dedicating and, and committing the family to say, we want to raise this child up in the Lord, and you're asking the church to pray for them and help them, and hey, let's come alongside this family, and together we're going to build into this new baby's you know, life, and it's, so it's called parent-child dedication. Well, that would be a, a very good application of Proverbs 22.6. Start out a child on the way he should go when he's young, and when he is old, he won't depart from it. Okay, so it's not about you as a parent; it's about the earlier, you know. And we see this in other passages in Proverbs too. Um, for example, in Proverbs, just a few chapters before Proverbs nineteen eighteen, chasten your son while there is hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. In other words. Be prompt in your discipline. And Proverbs 13, 24. Uh, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him early. Right? Same idea. So this is a theme that you see in Proverbs that relates to the home about, you know, you gotta you got to train these kids early on. Um, it, it's hard to do that. You know, you get a, a puppy... And you can train them pretty early. You get a six-year-old dog from the pound, a rescue dog, boy, you're going to have your hands full, you know, teaching that dog a thing. And uh, I think the same thing is true for, for children. Any more comments or thoughts on that? All right. The second sphere of life is that of relationships. Uh, that of relationships. So, you know, we see this in Chapter 1. Uh, you know, interacting with other people. Uh, so, for example, it says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood, let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause, so forth and so on. So it's, it's about how to interact with other people, good and, and bad. 
And then the third sphere is the sphere of the world, symbolized throughout Proverbs with things like the streets, the city gates, the city, that type of thing. You know, as you're living in this world, Proverbs is going to give you some great wisdom uh, for how to, you know, to do that. So those are, broadly speaking, three primary spheres of life. There's other, you know, things that might fall outside the scope of that, but in general, you can put most of the Proverbs into one of those three uh, spheres. All right, so this is a good stopping point, so I'll, you know, see if you have any questions before we close. But next week, we're going to get into the varieties of Proverbs. And this is not necessarily the literary form. We're going to talk about that too, but just the varieties of, of Proverbs that we see. So any closing thoughts or questions before we uh, wrap up? Yeah. Back to our discussion around the fear of the Lord. And I'll just speak for myself. I, I, when I came to the Lord, there was a, there was a fear there. Okay? It wasn't about what we were talking about. <coughs> it was a fear of everlasting damnation, you know, going to hell. I mean, so, you know, I, I, I don't know that I had to learn to unfear the Lord or to fear Him in a different way, but I certainly, you know, I can remember that. It was yeah. a fear of where I was going to go. Yeah, so that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up because I think, you know, we don't want to be guilty of oversimplifying it. Um, he said when he was when he came to the Lord, there was a actual fear of eternal damnation. And, and by the way, that is absolutely okay and right, and that really is why anybody should get saved, you know. Um, I talk about this in, in my Getting the Gospel Wrong book and Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell book, that to get saved, using our sort of common description of that, although as I've mentioned in Scripture, more often than not, the word saved does not have anything to do with eternal salvation. It's talking about physical deliverance from danger, sickness, that kind of thing. But still, when we talk about eternal salvation and we say, you know, when did you get saved or how long have you been saved or would you like to get saved? We're talking about eternal salvation. From what? The penalty of sin. What's the penalty of sin? Literal eternity in a place called hell being tormented day and night forever and ever. That's not me saying that. That's the Bible saying that. Okay. So I know there's a great movement afoot within uh, apostate Christianity to deny the existence of hell and you know the view of annihilationism. And there is no eternal torment. But the Bible uses that phrase, tormented day and night forever and ever. That, you, there's really no wiggle room there. Um, so you, Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you could be happy and healthy and have your best life now. He didn't. He died on the cross to rescue you from hell. So I was the same way, Ken. You know, I was a youngster at age six, and I, the preacher that night on a Sunday night had preached a very uh, impactive sermon that the Spirit of God used to really convict me in that moment that I did not want to go to hell. And, you know, there's obviously more involved in that. You have to understand you're a sinner. You have to understand that only God can save you through His you know, the death and resurrection of His Son and our Savior, and, and so forth. But there is certainly this recognition that I am a sinner, and that sin has a steep penalty on it. And so I don't want that. I want to be rescued or saved from that. The Greek word is so-so, to be delivered or rescued. And so nothing wrong with that at all. And I, you know, I get animated because, you know, you hear in this postmodern, you know, evangelical world you know, that, you know, you can't get saved, you know, salvation isn't just fire insurance, you know, you, you know, if you, if you want to get saved, you got to promise and pledge to do something, you got to bring something to the table, you got to do your part, it's about committing your life to Christ, and promising and pledging to obey and follow Him, and making Him the King of your life, and surrendering everything to Him, as if salvation is some kind of bilateral contract, but I'm here to tell you, fire insurance is exactly what salvation is, when you boil it down, you're a sinner on the road to hell. You don't want to go to hell. Trust in Jesus Christ who paid that penalty for you so you don't have to go. Amen. So you, it's not what, it's not a con, you're not promising to obey God. It's your, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. And, and I'm just desperately in need of salvation. Now, after you've been 
saved from the penalty of sin. And then the whole Christian life is about being saved from the power of sin, day by day, spiritual growth, conforming to the image of Christ, growing in Christ's likeness. And as we've talked a lot about, and we talked about this Sunday, sometimes it's three steps forward, two steps back. Sometimes it's 10 steps back, and then one step forward a little at a time. I mean, all kinds of influences in life that can have an impact on our, our progressive sanctification. But nothing can change who we are in Christ if we've trusted Christ. And then, of course, ultimately when we die, we will be rescued once and for all from the very presence of sin when we get to glory. But um, it's that muddy middle that really people struggle with. And they say, well, he can't be saved because look what he did. Or they can't be saved because look what they did. Or they lost it. You know, like we talked about Sunday. I don't want to re-preach that message. But, um, but if you understand the nature of our position in Christ versus our practice in Christ, then you can sort of settle that issue and say, okay, I'm in Christ. Nothing can change that. I get it. He's promised me eternal life and he meant it. Now, what do I do with that? How, how am I going to live out the new man within me? And, uh, and so that's the process. But yeah, I mean, the, the traditional concept of fear and the biblical notion of the fear of the Lord are not mutually exclusive. There is part of fearing the Lord biblically does involve that. You know, there it, you know, we should fear the consequences of sin, even the temporal consequences as a believer. We should never fear our eternal destiny because Jesus promised eternal life, but we should fear that. And certainly unbelievers, you know, they're going to fear him. I mean, in, in the same way that we did before we came to faith. So, all right. Any, anything else you'd like to share or say? All right. Awesome. Thanks for coming out tonight. We'll see you Sunday, if not before. And uh, looking forward to 